0: If you want to make your way back to your seat Later, later after the service you can, you can ask Joe Stewart What exactly pillaging Vikings Have to do with missions Because that was his fun fact from first service and I said, I didn't take a dig at him. Is he in here? I just said, it's, it's gotta be the first time that pillaging Vikings have ever made like an appearance from up front at LCF. Uh, let's pray together and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to be together as a church family and to worship you. God, I pray that as we gather here this morning, Lord, that... God, that we would be grateful for your son, Jesus. God, that we would gather in a spirit of thankfulness for his work on the cross, but also a spirit of hope and expectancy. God, for all of those here who have received your grace by faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that that thankfulness and that hope, that expectancy would be what anchors us in this life. God, that we would have humble, profound gratitude for the work of Christ on the cross, but also a tangible joy and excitement over what we know our eternal future to be. God, and in between there, Lord, would the gospel be what permeates our lives? So Lord, as we're here together this morning, would that be the case? Would we just rest in your presence, knowing your love and grace for us? God, would we Meet you in your word, God would we glorify and praise you in song? Would Jesus be the best thing going here this morning and at all times Lord, we pray these things in his name amen i uh, I have a few kind of uh interesting, odd life habits or principles that I adhere to. I was listening to a podcast once, and the person on the podcast described himself as engaging in some practices that he referred to as pointlessly provocative self-denial, which I felt like was a pretty accurate description of who I am as a human. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, In ninth grade, on a New Year's Eve, I, I made a resolution with my best friend at the time that for the next year, we weren't going to drink pop. Uh, we weren't going to have any carbonated uh, beverage at all over the course of that year, ninth grade. So that would have been like eighteen years ago. Uh, neither one of us has cracked, and I refuse to. So I haven't had I haven't had a pop in eighteen years, and there's no just like good reason for that. It's just he. I'll have one when he has one, and so and he'll have one when I have one, which means we're both going to our grave without ever drinking pop. I. Um, I don't dance in public. I don't know when that one started. It just did. I was in college, I think. And, uh, you know, so at this point, I'm 12, 13, 14 years down the road on that. And uh, my wife would really, it would make wedding receptions much more fun for her if I would cave. But I'm a man of principle. And I don't know why or when that principle came about in my life, but no dancing in public. The Another example is uh, I... I have not ever and I refuse to ever watch any of the Lord of the Rings movies. Someone booed me in first service. When they came out, when they were released, and I think I was in high school when they came out, I watched like five minutes of the very first one. And I was so like just hopelessly bored in the first five minutes that I said, no more of that ever. And so I haven't and I won't and uh, if you love them, good for you. People tell me they're awesome, but I, I'm just a, a man of principle, and I said I would never watch them, so I never will. I have a, a number of those things in my life. I don't know why all of them exist, but some of them do, and I refuse to cave on them. It, I don't feel any different about you people that drink soda and love Lord of the Rings, and dance your heart out in public. Good for you. I'm just not going to join you in any of those things. This passage we're going to look at this morning talks about these kinds of like non-essential matters and the unfortunate reality that oftentimes within the church, they become incredibly divisive that non essential issues have split churches they 've divided individual believers on the basis of personal decisions that someone makes that someone else maybe doesn 't feel comfortable with, and Paul gives a very clear call and encouragement for how it is that we should interact on these sorts of issues i 'm going to give a number of these over the course of our time together in this passage, and let me just make kind of a a precursor statement here at the beginning. I'm not advocating for one position or another on any of these. Um, just because I, I give it as an example, your my initial reaction is going to be to just assume that I agree with you on the thing that I'm talking about. That may or may not be the case, and it would be antithetical to this passage for me to stand up here and like plant my flag on some of these. I have convictions about them. I have opinions about them. I have principles from Scripture that I think support why it is that I do or don't do the thing that I do or don't do or the way that we lead our church here, but they shouldn't be divisive, and that's the primary thing that we're going to see this morning. Romans 14 isn't written in a vacuum. It comes out of what Paul is doing over the course of this letter, and so Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 are all the theological realities of the gospel and sin and justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and what that means in that we have the Holy Spirit within us and we're brought together as family. And then in chapter 12, things shift and Paul becomes more practical. And he starts to go into what does this actually look like in the life of a believer. And one way you could think about Romans toward individual to tangibly love the people around us. That's what should mark a Christian is a profound love for the Lord and a visible, tangible love for the people that we interact with. And so in Romans 12, Paul tells us that that love should be um, a love of service, that we've got these gifts and these talents and these passions that the Lord has given us, and we should use those in service to the body, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 13 says that that love should be submissive, that as gospel-centered individuals, we would submit ourselves to one another, that we owe each other love, and so we submit to one another in that way, but then he also looks through the lens specifically of the government, that we would submit to the state that is over us. And then Romans 14 is going to show us that that love should be sensitive, that as people who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we would be sensitive toward one another on non-essential issues. Romans 12, all the way to the end of the letter, we've grouped together under this heading that um, a life that's been saved by the gospel is a life that is to be shaped by the gospel. It's a life centered on the gospel, is a life that is shaped by the gospel. And so 12 through 16 are all these practical matters. And Paul right here says there's a certain way as saved people that we should interact on things that we disagree about, non-essential things we disagree about. And that's what we're going to see over the next two weeks. Chapter 14 is all in this one topic, and so this is gonna be kind of part one of a two part message. And over the next two weeks, this is the big takeaway that the extraordinary grace of the gospel shapes how we interact with one another in ordinary matters. We've talked a lot about being gospel centered over the course of this series, but what does that actually look like? How does that actually work? And this chapter of Romans is a great opportunity for us to get a glimpse of how the grace of the gospel, the extraordinary grace of the gospel, actually impacts the way we interact in, a da- in our daily lives. Uh, let me give you just a roadmap, and then we'll jump in. The roadmap is this. Verse 1 of chapter 14 is going to give us a general principle. From verse 2 all the way down to the end of verse 12, we're going to see four of these amazing truths about the gospel, four extraordinary graces, And then we're going to talk about how those should then influence the way we actually interact with one another. And then verse 13 gives us a closing sort of encouragement or exhortation. So let me just read the whole passage and then we'll dive in. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputable matters. One person believes he may eat anything while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives are, since he gives thanks to God, and whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, Why do you judge your hand before the judgment seat of God? For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Start in verse one. It's kind of a general principle here. I want to share a quote with us at the beginning that is a good summary of this entire passage. It's Incredibly old. It's from a person named Rubertus Maldinius. He says this In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I want to work backwards through verse one. I think it's the easiest way to understand it. Every sort of phrase in the first sentence of this chapter is incredibly intentional and carries with it some things for us to understand. And once we see that, the rest of the passage is pretty easy to take in. So where I want to start is with disputed matters. What exactly does that mean? An author, Leslie Flynn, in a book called Great Church Fights, says this, Why disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices? A Christian in the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women and then offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. And a woman from Europe thought it almost immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. A man from Denmark was pained to even watch British Bible school students play soccer while the British students shrank back from his pipe smoking. Let me give some contextual examples. Over the course of hundreds of years of church life, unfortunately, there have been a lot of splits that take place in churches over issues that are non-essential in regard to how it is that we conduct ourselves in local church environments. Some of those are doctrinal. Is the earth old or young? Should we look at scripture through an Arminianist or a Calvinist lens? What exactly should women's roles in leadership be? What is the nature and expression of spiritual gifts? What are we to believe about the end times? Those have unfortunately split churches into different denominations, but it doesn't stop at doctrinal issues. Issues of worship style have split the church. What should the instrumentation be? What kind of songs should you sing? How loud should it be? Should you use stage lighting or not? Communion frequency, baptism type, what style of church governance, how formal should the dress be, all of these have given rise, unfortunately, to the incredible number of denominations that exist within the Christian church in our world. But there are these non-essential ishing tobacco. At various times in the church's history, you could have gotten into very spirited debates about whether or not believers should go to movies, should they dance, should you play cards, because playing cards could lead to gambling. Today, it would be common to get into a conversation among Christian parents about what kind of schooling choice they want to make. Should you go to public school or private school? Should you homeschool? You might have spirited conversations about what your holiday engagement should look like. Halloween, okay to celebrate or not okay to celebrate? What about Santa? Do we tell our kids about Santa or no? How about presents? How many presents is too many presents? Should we give presents at all? the Easter bunny. Material issues can divide people. How much affluence is too much affluence? Should we save for retirement? Should we pay life insurance or not? What kind of vacations should we take, or how long, or where to, or how extravagant? These are all non-essential matters. Unfortunately, whether they be issues of personal decision or corporate church practice, They often get elevated to heightened places that divide individual believers or whole congregations. At various points, some have even used some of these as arbitrary theological gateways by which they judge the authenticity of another person's faith. And when we allow that to happen, we compromise the unity that is supposed to make the gospel look so appealing. Differences in opinion on essential matters do not need to destroy unity. Let me make one more statement here. In the same way that we shouldn't make non-essential matters into essential ones, we also cannot take clear biblical commands and standards and try to turn them into gray areas. On many, many issues, the Bible is very clear. What we should do, what we should not do. What's the way that God says this is how humanity flourishes and lives best versus what is sin and what transgresses His law. When that's the case, we obey. We obey. And when a brother or sister in Christ isn't obeying, we lovingly confront them with the truth of Scripture and then walk alongside them as they move toward joyful, heartfelt, and heart-led obedience. Some issues are not disputed matters. This passage is not about clear biblical standards. It's about non-essential, open-handed matters that Paul calls disputed matters. And then what does he say to do in relation to those? He says, don't argue. Don't argue over disputed matters. Have you ever been in a situation with your family? Uh, Spouses, you'll probably understand this pretty well. Emotions, for whatever reason, are running high. Stress is running high. And you find midway through an argument that you don't know, A, what you're arguing about, B, why it's important, and C, which side you started on. But you're not going to lose, and so I'm hanging in this thing, right? Right? You don't know why, but all of a sudden you're, you're at the grocery store arguing about peanut butter or something like that. A total nothing fight. Siblings have nothing fights all the time. Paul says, don't do that in the church. This is the, love. It's not just that we don't, too, means when it says to bear with one another in love. It's not just that we don't argue about them. Verse 14, or verse 1 of chapter 14 says that we go a step beyond that and we accept one another despite differences on these opinions. Not just that we kind of say, okay, fine, I get it, we have to be a church, like we have to get along, but you also don't say, but I'm going to make sure you know my opinion as I bring you into the fellowship here. You don't argue, Paul says. Back up a little bit more. Except anyone who is weak in faith. That phrase is important to clarify. Here's what Paul isn't talking about. He's not talking about someone who has feeble faith, meaning that they only trust Christ a little or something like that. That would be to imply that their faith may or may not be effective. This is not about basic trust in Christ for salvation and justification. Instead, weak and strong are terms that Paul is using to talk about someone who is weak in the assurance that their faith permits them to do certain things, as opposed to someone who is confident in these matters. Paul is clear in other writings that our faith in Christ has provided us with a spirit of freedom, a spirit of liberty. Paul isn't saying that there are some people who are weak in faith and therefore doubt their salvation although that could be the case, but that's not what this passage is about. This is about someone who, for some background history reason in their own life or some familial reason in their own life, says, even though the gospel says I could do this thing, I'm not going to. Paul uses the reference here that those people, that that person is weak in faith. And let me talk a little bit about weakness here. It is natural for us to assume that the person who thinks differently is the weak one, and therefore I am always the strong one. Let me give an example. Someone at a certain point in history might have taken the stance that playing cards was wrong because it could turn into gambling. So naturally, the person who does play the cards, thanks to themselves, well, that person's weak. They don't understand that they've got the liberty to play cards. Bless their heart, they'll figure it out one day. But the person who doesn't play would look at the card player and say, oh, so weak. He doesn't understand that the gospel should create in us a sense of self control that wants to stay away from these things. Both would put themselves in the strong position. That's our natural tendency. Paul says, hey, if you're thinking of yourself in the strong sense, accept the one that you're thinking of in a weak sense. Let me just encourage us on any of these disputable matters, assume you're the weak one, and then you don't have an acceptance issue, kind of like what Paul is talking about here. So what does accept actually mean? The word in Greek is proslambano, and it's more than giving someone room to be an acquaintance in your life. It's more than acquiescing to another person's right to have a different opinion or acknowledging that their different opinion still has room to belong. The word actually means, literally means, to welcome someone into the fellowship of your heart. There's a key usage of this in the book of John that helps to illustrate the full thrust of the word. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and proslambano, take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. By the grace of God received through faith in Christ, we will be accepted, welcomed, received into heaven. Paul's general principle here is for believers to accept but non-essential issues, that we welcome them in to the fellowship of our heart. That's the general principle. How does that actually work? flow out of the gospel? What does it look like for that to actually impact the way that we live? Well, let me walk through these four extraordinary graces that Paul underpins this with. The first one comes from verses two, three, and four, and it's that God has accepted you. One person believes that he may eat anything while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat and one who does not eat must not judge the one who does because God has accepted Them. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul is talking about eating vegetables versus eating meat. The historical context on that is that there were some within the Roman church, likely Jewish, who, in order to avoid eating meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol, just took a stance of vegetarianism. I'll just avoid meat altogether and then I'll be sure I never eat something that was sacrificed to an idol. Someone from a Gentile or a pagan background would have had no historical understanding of that from the Old Testament. So they didn't think about it at all. They just ate meat. What could have likely happened then was that the Jewish individual saw the Gentile individual doing that and thought, are you even saved? How could you eat that? It's non essential. Neither choice is flatly prohibited by Scripture. It's a total, no, totally normal, ordinary, everyday decision. What's on your plate at dinner time? Open-handed, non-essential. And the grace here, the amazing grace that influences the way that we should accept one another is the end of verse 3. God has, proslimbano, accepted him. Eat the meat or don't eat the meat. Neither one is going to be the basis by which you're judged at the end of all things. Neither one is sinful. God has welcomed you into his fellowship thanks to the justifying work of Christ. His attitude then toward people ought to be our attitude toward other people. That's extraordinary grace. It's based on the work of Christ's death on the cross, not our decision in non-essential matters. Therefore, we can interact in these things in a way that's sensitive to those with opposing views. We can accept one another in the same way we've been accepted. How does that actually impact our interactions? Well, the first one is this. Do not condescend. Let me take an example. You don't let your children trick-or-treat. Fantastic. There's no reason to look down on the person who does. Our natural inclination in these things, whether it be holidays or something else, is to think to ourselves, oh, one day when they're more mature, they'll do the same thing I'm doing because they'll finally get it. That's condescending. And even if you don't say it out loud, but you just think it in your mind and in your heart, you've put a barrier between your unity with that person now. That's the opposite of accepting in a non-essential matter. But the same is true on the other side. So if you don't condescend to the one who does something different than you, you also don't condemn the one who makes a different decision than you. You uh, do let your kids trick or treat, great. There's no reason to condemn those that don't, to question whether or not they actually love Christ and understand their freedom in him. It's our natural inclination to do that. You might not say it out loud, but you've broken unity. You've put a barrier to unity between you and that other person just by thinking it. God has accepted us. We can accept others who think differently in non-essential matters. The second grace here picks up in verse 5. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat Uh, It is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. The second extraordinary grace here is that Christ is Lord. Similar to the food conversation, Paul points out a dispute within this church about certain days. The historical context on that is that there were some within the church, again, likely Jewish, from a Jewish background, who observed certain Old Testament festival days. They felt like they needed to. Their history, their family history, they were brought up celebrating those days. And when they became Christians, they didn't want to just stop having those festivals. Others from a Gentile background, they've got no... History of that in their lives, and so they see no reason to celebrate the festival. Paul says, Fantastic. You celebrate it, wonderful. You don't celebrate it, that's wonderful too. We're accepting of one another. We're not condescending or condemning, but there's more to it than that because Christ's death has brought you life and, in this context, liberty. It's brought you life to the full here and now, and at your death, you will step into eternal life and complete glorified liberation from sin. That means, in our case, you can listen to that worship music with all of its guitars cranked up at the full volume, and you can love it every single second of every single song. Or you can listen to just voices singing just hymns, and you can love that too. And it doesn't need to be divisive. The key is to do so with thanksgiving in your heart. You listen to contemporary music, you do that with thanks to God. You listen to strictly traditional music, you do that with thanks to God. Whether you're rocking out to modern worship music or you're listening to something that's older and more boring, I'm kidding. See, that would be the wrong way to do that. I just want to make sure you're awake. You do it as an act of worship. If you can receive something from God with thanksgiving, then you can offer it back to him as an act of worship. And Christ is Lord over all of it. You have a master, and it is him that you serve. It is him that is Lord. You aren't Lord over someone else, nor is someone else Lord over you. You serve him here on earth with gladness and joy and thanksgiving, and when you die, you'll serve him eternally with gladness and joy and thanksgiving. That's an extraordinary grace of God. But it still demands something of us. In verse 5, Paul says, "...let each one be fully convinced in his own mind." Which means, do not ignore your convictions. You should be fully convinced about the decision you make. Which means, have some convictions. Don't just do a thing or don't do a thing because somebody else does or does not do it. What is the, how does the Bible inform you? What principles do you pull out? And your principles may end up differing from somebody else's, but have convictions. If you have strong convictions about whether or not you should save for retirement, don't ignore those. Act according to them. If you have strong convictions about what kind of school your child should attend, don't ignore those. But understand these are non-essential issues. There's no clear, explicit biblical command who's fully convinced in the opposite direction. Don't ignore your convictions. But don't ignore your conscience either. I'll give a personal example on this one. I made a decision long before I was a believer at a young age that I wasn't going to drink alcohol. I decided that I simply wasn't going to do so. When I became a believer, I understood the freedom in Christ to drink in moderation without getting drunk. But my conscience didn't change. That's the Holy Spirit speaking inside of me. I have somewhat of an addictive personality. When I started distance running, I thought, you know what would be fun would be to just train and do a 5k. I got in shape to do a five K and I thought, I should do a 10K instead, so I trained a little more. And then I thought, I should do a half marathon, so I trained a little bit more. And before I knew it, the very first race I ever did was a full marathon. Why? Because I just I take everything to the extreme. That's what I do. The Holy Spirit within me says, You would do that with alcohol, Tim you would take that to the extreme. So my conscience says, you probably shouldn't drink. It wouldn't be wise of me to ignore that inside of me. The Lord knows me better than I know myself. The Holy Spirit is speaking that to protect me. But that doesn't mean that somebody else's conscience tells them the same thing. And so we don't, neglect that. We don't ignore our convictions. We don't neglect our conscience. It doesn't offend me if we're out at dinner and you decide to order a drink and you drink in moderation. The Bible gives you liberty to do that. It's just that my conscience tells me it wouldn't be smart for me to do so. Don't neglect your conscience. The next grace comes out of verse 10. The first two sentences in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? It's the first time in this passage that Paul has made an allusion to family. They, the person on the other side of your disputable matter, the them in that case, they are family. And that's an extraordinary grace. You've got family like you've never had before. We're coming out of Thanksgiving, so we all get family you, you probably have like a crazy uncle. Everybody has a crazy uncle. You might be the crazy uncle. That's fantastic. When you became a follower of Jesus, you got a whole lot of crazy uncles and a whole lot of crazy aunts and a whole lot of amazing brothers and sisters. And it is an extraordinary grace. You've got a global, beautifully diverse, huge family. And in having this huge family of believers, we have a visible picture of Christ. And the bigger the family is with more racial diversity, more gifts, more personalities, more talents, more passions, we get a more and more complete picture of the infinitely glorious and the creative impact the way it is that we interact. Well, do not cast people away. We don't push family away for trivial reasons. You don't sever family ties because one person in the family thinks the toilet paper should go under in their heretic, and the other person in the family thinks the toilet paper should go over. That's a trivial matter. We shouldn't do that in the church either. In non-essential matters, we can disagree and worship next to each other. You think the earth is young? Awesome. You think the earth is old? Fantastic. You think the Bible should be read through an Arminianist lens? That's awesome. You can choose to do that. You think the Bible should be read through a Calvinistic lens? That's great. God decided that for you. Yeah, theology jokes. (laughs) We'll figure all those things out in heaven later. But until then, we gather together as a family under the banner of the cross and we just worship our hearts out. We link arms and seek to see the kingdom of Christ extended to the ends of the earth and we don't argue over disputable matters. Don't cast away, but also don't criticize. You might disagree with the way that another church baptizes or how they do communion. That's fine. We don't need to criticize. We can hold our convictions about those things. We can be true to our conscience about those things. We can operate as a local church within how we think those should be carried out without casting any judgment or criticism on another church who practices those a different way. If there's no explicit biblical command that this is how you do it, this frequency, in these sort of ways, at these particular times, then don't argue, and don't criticize. We can be brothers and sisters with local churches who do things differently than us. To argue or to criticize does nothing to build up the big C church. It only tears down, it only divides, and that's not love. Let me give The last of these. It picks up there at the end of verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The last grace here is that judgment is coming. Paul pulls an Old Testament reference from the book of Isaiah there. That's what the as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God every single person will stand judgment. And in that moment, whether you've received God's grace through faith or not, each and every person throughout all of history will know at that moment of judgment exactly who the truth of God is and what that means. Every single knee will bow there. Why in the world is that moment of judgment an extraordinary grace? Well, because for those of us who have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, there is no fear in that moment. When you stand judgment before the Lord, that criminal hearing will turn into an adoption ceremony. You will not be declared guilty in that moment. You will be declared innocent, but not only will you be declared innocent, you will be brought into the eternal, perfect, unbroken fellowship of the Lord. You're His child, and there's no reason to fear. That's why that moment of judgment is an extraordinary grace. It's going to be our gateway into the eternal presence of the Lord. And so what does that mean we should do? Well, it means do not climb on the bench. You won't be the judge there. Don't try to be the judge here. You won't be held accountable for another person's life there, and you won't be the one holding that person accountable for their life. So don't do it here. You won't be called in as a witness to give testimony on another person's life. God doesn't need you for that. He's omniscient. He knows everything perfectly. He'll judge and he won't need our help in that moment. He doesn't need our help in it before either. And then lastly, do not cower in fear. We live in liberty. I live in liberty, the place, but we live in freedom. You will give an account for your life, but I don't think that account is going to start with, "Um, can we talk about the whole Easter bunny thing you did as a parent? Will be on clear biblical commands. For those of us who have been justified by faith in Christ, we will be forgiven and washed in His blood. In that moment of judgment, you'll be brought in, ushered in to God's perfect, eternal presence. In non essential matters, have your convictions, listen to your conscience, don't condescend or condemn others. Don't climb into the bench and try to be the judge of someone else, but also don't cower in fear. And then Paul gives a final exhortation at the beginning of verse 13. Our Bibles have an arbitrary break there. When Paul wrote Romans, he didn't put that in. So he says, Therefore, in light of all of this, let us no longer judge one another. In non-essential matters, do not judge. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, Charity, The extraordinary grace of the gospel shapes how we interact with one another in ordinary matters. Brian, you guys can come up. You know what's not attractive to someone who's not been saved by God's grace? When they're in the presence of a group of believers, and the group of believers are arguing over whether or not we should go watch movies in general. Like, The non-believer is thinking to themselves, what in the world? These people, what's going on? Why can't they agree? Aren't, Aren't you guys the same? That unity is supposed to be compelling and beautiful to those who are outside the church. And when we allow disputable matters to become divisive, the gospel doesn't look very attractive. Are there issues where the Bible is clear and we stand firm? Absolutely. But on the issues where the Bible is not explicit, We have our convictions. We listen to our conscience. We don't condescend or condemn. We don't climb into the bench and judge. We don't cower in fear, but we let the gospel dictate how we interact. And so we accept because we've been accepted. We understand that Christ is the Lord, and so we do all things in praise and worship to him here and now because we're going to do all things to his praise and worship and glory for all of eternity. We understand that they are family, and so we operate as a family, which means we encourage one another, we build each other up, we're there to support one another, to care for one another, to minister to one another, to confront one another when an obvious sin issue crops up, and we don't let that get sidetracked by disagreements on non-essential matters. And then lastly, we understand the judgment is coming, and the reality of the sweetness of that judgment moment for us, and the covering of Christ means we don't have to play judge here the gospel and it's extraordinary grace influences our ordinary matters we'll continue talking about that next week as we keep looking at chapter 14, amen amen, let's stand up look at the person next to you they probably make weird choices that you don't make, that's cool let's worship alongside them (laughs)